You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and redeemer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I know this morning that many of us are having a difficult time, and I think it's a grace from God that today we come to a passage that teaches us some really encouraging truths that we need to hear in the middle of hard times. And the passage we're going to look at is the miracle of Jesus feeding a crowd of more than 5,000 people, which we find in Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 to 21. So if you've got a Bible, turn with me to Matthew 14. And while you're turning there, I want to tell you that today's passage is really significant. And it's significant because it's the only miracle of Jesus and the only event from the life of Jesus prior to his last week in Jerusalem, which is directly recorded in all four of the Gospels. And that might surprise us. It might surprise us that this is the miracle which is singled out in this way in the Scriptures. Because we've seen in our previous sermons in Matthew that Jesus performed some really spectacular miracles, right? And he healed illnesses that couldn't be healed in the ancient world, like leprosy. He healed conditions that weren't even healed in the greatest miracles of the Old Testament, like blindness. Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And each of these miracles is astonishing. And yet none of them appear in all four Gospels. But the miracle that we're going to read about today does. Because something about this miracle left a unique impression in the minds of the Gospel writers. Something about this one made each of them say, I've got to include that when I tell my story. And not only did this miracle leave such a tremendous impact on the minds of the gospel writers, but it also left a tremendous impression upon the early church. Because the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most common scenes found in early Christian art. So this is a miracle that the earliest generations of Christians were really moved by. But I fear that perhaps our generation today is not nearly as moved by this same miracle. So I hope that this morning, as we look at this miracle, we will be as in awe of Jesus as uh, the earliest generations of Christians were, that we will love him and worship him and trust him more in the difficult situations that we find ourselves in life as a result of what we learn here. So, as I said, today we're primarily going to be in Matthew chapter 14. But at points this morning, I'm going to draw from the parallel passages that record this miracle, which you can find in Mark 6. Luke 9, and John 6. Now, today as we look at this miracle, we're going to see three truths about the greatness of Jesus. First, we're going to see that Jesus has great compassion. Second, we're going to see that Jesus wields great power. And third, we're going to see that Jesus gives grace in great abundance. So we begin with our first point, which is that Jesus has great compassion. As we begin our passage, we are beginning a new section of Matthew's gospel. Our last 32 sermons in Matthew were pretty much all about Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. And Matthew presented that material to us in a topical or a thematic way, rather than a chronological way. So what Matthew did was he took events that happened at different points in Jesus' ministry in Galilee... And he pulled them out of the timeline and brought them together and reported them to us in one big chunk. Because that way he can communicate to us what the big themes were in Jesus' early ministry. So we saw in chapters 4 through 7 and in chapter 10, Jesus preaching. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we saw Jesus calling disciples and a whole bunch of Jesus' miracles. And then in chapters 11 to 13, we saw Jesus being rejected. And again, each of these sections is more topical than chronological. But as we pick up in chapter 14, now we're in a new section of this book. 
And in this new section, two things change. First, Jesus is going to travel a bit. There are still going to be a few more incidents in this book that take place in Galilee, but now we're going to begin to see Jesus move around more often until ultimately he begins to head towards Jerusalem to die. But second, in this new section that we've come up upon, uh, Matthew's presentation of Jesus' life is now going to be a lot more chronological than it has been up to this point. So with that in mind, let's now begin our passage, Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, and we read, Now when Jesus heard this, heard what? I think the answer is what we found at the start of this chapter. Matthew 14, 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. So Jesus' ministry has attracted the attention of Herod Antipas, who we said last week was the puppet king of Galilee. And how did Jesus' ministry attract his attention? Well, both Mark and Luke begin their telling of the 5,000 by telling us that this miracle that we're about to look at happened immediately after Jesus had sent his 12 apostles out on their missionary journey. Now, that might surprise us, because in Matthew, the apostles were sent on their missionary journey all the way back in chapter 10. And for the last three chapters of this book, really all we've been seeing in Matthew is Jesus being rejected. But as I just said, remember that Matthew did not arrange the first part of his book chronologically, but rather topically. And when you read the other Gospels, you discover that the material describing the rejection of Jesus, which we looked at in Matthew 11 through 13, actually took place during various points during Jesus' ministry in Galilee. It wasn't like Jesus did all his good work showing himself to be the Messiah up front and got rejected only at the end. No, he did his work and was rejected as he went along. But now that we've entered this new section of Matthew's book, which is more chronologically arranged, we need to know that the most recent events that have taken place are First, that Jesus has sent his disciples out on a missionary journey throughout Galilee, and those disciples preached about Jesus and performed miracles, and they caused a big stir, just as Jesus' own preaching and miracles had caused a big stir, and that caught the attention of Herod. But now second, Jesus' apostles have returned to their master. Their journey is done. And third, at this very same time, Jesus hears that Herod, who had recently killed his cousin John the Baptist, is now interested in him. And with this confluence of events, Jesus decides it's time to take a break. So Matthew 14, 13. Now, when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. So Jesus withdraws from the areas where he has been working on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, and he takes a trip across the Sea of Galilee by boat. Now here I've got to talk about an apparent discrepancy between what Matthew writes here and the other Gospels. Because Matthew tells us that Jesus went out by himself. But in Mark's account, we read this, Mark 6, 31. Jesus said to the disciples, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, Mark tells us that Jesus decided to take this trip to give the disciples a break. They had made this exhausting missionary journey. When they returned, things were hectic. People were still demanding a lot of Jesus' attention. And the disciples had been so busy, it was like they didn't have any time to eat. So Jesus says, let's take a break from this work. And they, Jesus and his disciples together, went to this desolate place by boat. Now, this is one of those places where the critic likes to say, see, the Bible has all of these contradictions. Which is it? Did Jesus leave by himself, like Matthew says, or did he go with his disciples, like Mark says? Which is it? Well, in actuality, this is not as difficult as it sounds, because in Greek, this expression, by himself, can often just mean privately. So Jesus withdrew privately with his disciples to a desolate place. A desolate place that Luke tells us was in the region of a town called Bethsaida, which was on the northeast side of the Sea of Galilee. 
Jesus withdrew, certainly, to mourn his murdered cousin John. He withdrew to keep his head down because it was not yet the right time to, to, draw, to, to run afoul of the political leaders and get put on trial. And he withdrew to give his disciples a much-needed break. And in this third reason that Jesus withdrew, already we can see his great compassion, compassion for his disciples. Because Jesus has asked much of them, and they have been serving him diligently to the point of exhaustion, and he has noticed it, and in his compassion, Jesus has decided it's time to let them have some rest. Friends, we need to know that Jesus is not a hard, merciless master, always driving and never giving a reprieve. No, we saw back in chapter 11 that Jesus is the source of true rest. And Jesus says this at the end of chapter 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, life is hard. Life has many burdens and hardships, and Jesus knows that. He knows our burdens. He knows when we are weary, and he invites us to find rest in him. In our world today, we often don't have a very healthy view of rest. Uh, you can ask Sarah, and she'll tell you I'm often like that. When I'm supposed to be off on my off day or on vacation, I still spend a lot of it doing work. And she'll say, you need to rest, but... I don't do well taking time off. I don't know what to do with myself. Uh, I do a lot better working. And I think a lot of us are like that. But rest is a good and a godly thing. And Jesus offers us rest, rest from our labors and our burdens. And, and Jesus here compassionately sees the work his disciples have been doing, and he gives them some downtime, just as he also intends to take some much-needed rest. But... The crowds have a different idea. Look at verse 13. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. You know, everywhere that Jesus goes in Galilee, these gigantic crowds pop up. And these crowds don't pop up because they've decided to follow Jesus in a saving way. It's not that they have responded to Jesus' call to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, Matthew 11:20 tells us the people in the cities where most of his mighty works had been done did not repent. Now, the crowds followed Jesus because, as John says at this point in his book, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. The crowds only wanted the benefits of Jesus' miraculous power. They were not interested in who Jesus was or what Jesus was really about. And so, as Jesus packs his ministry up and heads out of town on a boat, the crowds aren't going to let their miracle worker get away that easily. And Mark says this, Mark 6.33, Now many saw Jesus and his disciples going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. These crowds are inescapable. When the people see Jesus and his company leaving, they follow along the coastline by foot, so that when Jesus and his disciples finally reach their destination, the crowd is already there waiting for them. The only rest that Jesus and his disciples get is the respite on the boat. Verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. Now, imagine being one of the disciples there on that day. You're exhausted. You think you're going to get some downtime. You're on the boat. You get to relax with a nice view out on the lake for, for an hour or two. You finally get close to your destination, and there the crowds are again. And you know these people don't really love your master. You know they just want to exploit him. You're probably hoping he's going to send them away so you can get the break you were hoping for, right? But that's not Jesus' response to the crowds. Verse 14 says, And he had compassion on them. Jesus has compassion on the crowds. Now this might surprise us because we've seen in recent weeks that the crowd's unbelief has caused Jesus to do some hard things. The crowds wouldn't listen to Jesus' teaching, so he started speaking to them in parables, withholding a clear statement of the truth from them. The people of Nazareth rejected Jesus, so he would not perform many miracles in that town. 
withholding the visible evidence of who he was from them. And we might imagine because of these judgments on unbelievers that Jesus has no love left for these lost people in the crowd, that he's only filled with wrath and indignation towards them for their unbelief. But that is not Jesus' attitude at all. Now, Jesus may have been astonished at their unbelief we saw last week, but Jesus was not unloving towards them. He was not lacking sympathy. Now, when he saw all these confused, desperate people, his response was profound compassion. He pitied them. Mark tells us he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. These crowds were vulnerable. They were susceptible to harm, like straying sheep, which is what they were. Isaiah 53 describes the human plight like this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And that's where these crowds were at, enslaved to sin, under the dominion of death, lost and confused. And who would regather them? The corrupt political officials? Herod? The corrupt religious officials? The Pharisees? No. But Jesus had come to regather them. And yet they would not listen to Jesus. What a horrible, tragic, sad group of people these unbelieving crowds constitute. And Jesus pitied them. And his pity compels him to act. Mark tells us that Jesus' compassion caused him to teach them many things. Listen to the way Luke puts it. He welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God. Jesus had to be exhausted, and yet when he sees the crowds, he welcomes them. And again, he's preaching the truth to them. He's inviting them to repent and believe. But Jesus also met the crowds where they were at, and he let them have what they sought, access to his miraculous powers. Matthew 14, 14 says that he healed the sick, their sick. So, what do we see in these opening verses? We see the great compassion of Jesus. Compassion for his own people who needed rest and compassion for these unbelievers who could only see their immediate wants but who were blind to their need for a savior, who were blind to their truest and most ultimate need. And Jesus lovingly and sacrificially, and love always requires sacrifice, sacrificially gave of himself despite his exhaustion not just to his people, but also to the unbelievers. You know, it's so easy to simplify and reduce Jesus, to reduce Jesus to being a softy who just approves of everyone and everything indiscriminately, or to reduce him to just being this angry, wrathful fellow who's quick to flip tables and drop judgment on his enemies. But friends, that's not who Jesus is, and that's not who God is. God always acts in line with all of his attributes. And we saw this in our recent series in Jonah. God sent his prophet to Nineveh both to warn about judgment and to offer salvation. God doesn't turn his attributes on and off. His justice and mercy, his wrath and his love are always operative. And we do violence to the truth and nature and character of God when we minimize one of these attributes to maximize the other. Make no mistake, God is very angry at the impenitent. Jesus marveled at the unbelief of the folks in Nazareth, and that wasn't a good marveling. But Jesus is still full of love and compassion for the crowds. And friends, Jesus is still full of love and compassion today. He has compassion for believers. He pities us in our weakness, in our distress, and in our failings. And he has great compassion for the lost as well. You know, it's so easy in our society to look down upon lost and unbelieving people, especially at a time when there's so much overt hostility between believers and unbelievers. It's so easy to write unbelieving people off and wish that they would just go to the doom that awaits them. But we do that only when we deceive ourselves into forgetting about our own sinfulness into forgetting all the reasons why Jesus could have turned his back on us because of our terrible sins. Friends, whatever righteousness we have is not earned. It is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is a gift from God. We cannot, we must not pretend to be holier than thou. No, we must 
act like Jesus and Jesus cares about and has compassion for the lost. He's not detached and above it all. Even while he is righteously furious about their sin, he pities them. And his pity compels him to act. You know, the words that Mark uses here in describing Jesus' reaction to the crowds, seeing that they were like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew used those same words back in chapter 9. And there, what action did Jesus take when he saw another group of similarly pitiful unbelievers? His compassion led him to say, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then he sent his disciples on their missionary journey. In the same way, believing friends, we need to see Christ's commission upon us to evangelize the lost as the outgrowth of his compassion for the lost in our day. Friends, we are not called upon to condemn the lost. They're already under God's condemnation. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't talk about sin. We must talk about sin. But we are not to talk about sin in a way that usurps Christ's role as judge. It's not like, oh, here's my chance to talk about sin. Now I get to give my opinion about how all these other people are guilty and deserve hell. No, when we talk about sin, it's not to, to lift ourselves up, but it's to call the lost to repent. And friends, if we don't want to call the lost to repent, what are we doing? We're in total disobedience to Christ. And friends, if we do want to call the lost to repent, then we better have compassion or we won't do any good. 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that very clearly. We need to see the lost like Jesus does, as people who are confused and vulnerable and headed for ruin, and we need to have the capacity to pity. And we need to have hearts that are open to showing love and to offering help, to pointing people to the true hope that is available in Jesus only. So Jesus has great compassion. But you know, a lot of people today will say Jesus has compassion, and yet many of them will say something like this, yes, Jesus has compassion, and God is love, but things are just so bad out there that God has to just sit back and cry because he is powerless to stop evil things happening in our world. But that's totally false. Because as we see now in our second point, not only is Jesus greatly compassionate, but Jesus has great power. So the crowds are there. They're demanding Jesus' attention. And Jesus has been teaching and healing them. But you know, when you're busy, time hurries by. And the sun now begins to set. Verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Now this crowd is really massive. We're going to see in a few minutes. And everyone has been standing for hours in this desolate, rugged, hilly area. And you know, if you wanted to go get food and you were standing there, it's not like you could go jump in your car and drive to McDonald's. Now, if you want to go somewhere, you've got to walk. And when you get there, there's no certainty there's going to be food available for you. And the disciples know this. So they look at this crowd and they think, if these people are going to have any food tonight, they need to head out soon. So they have light that will uh, illumine their, their ability to, to still see where they're going as they walk to nearby villages. And if they leave now, there might still be food for them. And if they don't leave now, they're in for a long, cold, hungry night out here in the middle of nowhere. Now, the disciples weren't thinking about this problem because they were careful logistical planners. On the contrary, in John's Gospel, we read that Jesus is actually the one who made the disciples aware of this problem. And he had made them aware of it hours earlier, immediately after landing in the boat. John 6, 5 says, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. See, Jesus was in control of the situation from the beginning. And right at the start of the scenario, right when they landed on the near Bethsaida, he plants this question in the disciples' minds. How are we going to feed these crowds? And you know the disciples must have been wrestling with this question as the hours went by. But as Jesus healed people, 
those people were still mulling around. No one was leaving. The problem wasn't resolving itself. And now the disciples point out the day is over. The dinner hour has come and still there is no solution to the problem. So the only solution they can come up with is to tell Jesus to send the crowds away. But Jesus has a different answer. Look at verse 16. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. It must have been a very surprising statement to hear. The disciples were shocked. They're in the middle of nowhere. And yet, even though they knew this was going to be a problem for hours, they still haven't actually done anything about it. In fact, we're going to see in a minute, they don't have any food for themselves, much less to provide this huge crowd. And they look around and they don't see a solution, and so they snap back at Jesus. And Mark tells us the disciples' response in Mark 6.37. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? It's really a sarcastic response they give Jesus. They're saying, you want us to go and spend eight months' wages to feed everybody here? Like, number one, we don't have that kind of money laying around. And number two, if we did, where are we going to be able to go to get this quantity of food? And number three, if we could get this quantity of food, how are we going to get it back here to all these people? Their whole response is incredulous and disrespectful. Jesus has given them a task that they think is impossible, and they let him know in no uncertain terms that they can't make it work. But you know, Jesus often gives his followers gigantic tasks that at times seem totally daunting. Evangelize the lost. Be faithful in an evil time. Fulfill your responsibilities as a spouse and a parent in an evil age. Have faith in the middle of overpowering hardship. How could we accomplish any of that? Not by leaning into our own resources. No, we only have a chance to, to, to fulfill these calls on our life if we look to Jesus to accomplish what is seemingly impossible. If we trust that He can give us the resources and the strength and the wisdom and the help that we need to meet the moment. But the disciples don't have any of that. They, they don't realize they should be looking to Jesus. They're just grumbling. And so they faithlessly wilt in the face of what Jesus calls them to do here, for them to feed the crowds. And I say that they faithlessly wilted, first because they, they have no, they evidence no faith in their disrespect towards Jesus. And second, because what they do here betrays an ignorance of the Bible. Because as we read earlier this morning, back in the Old Testament, a very similar situation occurred. 2 Kings 4.42 says, A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God, Elisha, bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, How can I set this before a hundred men? The scenario is almost identical. There's a large number of people and no seeming way to feed them with what is on hand. But the prophet said to his servant, feed them. And the servant's response was faithless arguing. So Elisha repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he said it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Now, that happened for Elisha. But certainly by this point in Jesus' ministry, his disciples know that he is much, much greater than Elisha was in the Old Testament. So if Elisha was able to tell his servant to feed a big crowd, and God made it happen, shouldn't the disciples trust that Jesus can do even more so? But they don't. So Jesus handholds the disciples, and he helps them figure out what they should do next. In Mark's gospel, we read, He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. He, he prods them to do a little detective work. And after the disciples poke around a bit, John tells us that Andrew comes and gives Jesus a report. They have found one boy with some food. And here's what he had. Matthew 14, 17, they said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. John tells us the loaves are barley loaves, pretty cheap bread, and the fish here would have been pickled fish that the people would have eaten with the bread to zest up the bland bread a little bit. 
This is hardly the stuff of a grand feast. But Jesus is not deterred by what appears to be deficient resources. And praise God for that, because otherwise he would never use me or you, right? Jesus is content to use what is weak and flawed to accomplish his good purposes, because that brings him greater glory. And that's what he does here. So verse 18, and he said, bring them here to me. Jesus will work with what he's got. And he takes the bread and the fish in hand. But before he begins to do his work, he gives a further instruction. Verse 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass. Now Mark and Luke tell us that Jesus had the crowds divide themselves into groups of 50 people, and then they sat together. See, Jesus is about to do something amazing. But he wants to make sure that as this miracle transpires, things remain orderly that people don't fight over what Jesus is about to create, or that people don't rush Jesus when they see his immense power. And Jesus wisely comes up with a system to preclude that from happening. And that shouldn't surprise us. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And here Jesus devises a system to keep the peace as this miracle unfolds. A system that will ensure that everyone who has a need is served and that nobody is missed. Now this arrangement is also going to allow for a quick counting of how many people are present. And so at the end of the passage, when we see the numbers that are given, we can trust them because the disciples could very easily have counted the people uh, based on this way that Jesus had them all sit. Now Mark includes another interesting detail. He tells us that the grass the people sat upon was green. They might say, well, yeah, all grass is green. I would say right now a lot of grass isn't because, it, you know, we've got a drought going on. And the same thing happens over there, too. Um, so this detail that the grass is green might be cluing us in to when this miracle happened. Uh, John, in his account, reports this event took place around Passover, so it was springtime. But more than that, I think that this is a reference to Psalm 23. Jesus has looked at these desperate people. He sees that they are like sheep without a shepherd. But now Jesus will be their shepherd. Jesus will make sure that they shall not want. Jesus will make them lie down in green pastures. And he does. And so now the pieces are in place. The people are gathered. Jesus has the loaves and the fish. What happens? Verse 19. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Perhaps this was the traditional blessing said at the beginning of a Jewish meal. Blessed are you, Lord God, our God, the King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Now maybe this meal didn't look like much to those who saw the few pieces of bread and fish. But whatever we have is a gift from God. And Jesus shows us here it's good and right to thank God for whatever we have. Verse 19, then Jesus broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the crowds. So Jesus breaks the loaves and he begins to distribute them to the disciples so that the disciples may feed the crowds. And he gives one loaf to one disciple and a second to another and a third to another and a fourth to another and the fifth to another and a sixth to another and a seventh and so forth. I love the simple understated way that Matthew and the other gospel writers present this because the miracle is so tremendous it doesn't really require a lot of elaboration. Verse 20, and they all ate and were satisfied. Jesus here miraculously creates something from nothing or at least he replicates this small quantity of food until enough food had been generated to feed the whole crowd. Jesus performs a creative miracle. And this miracle is both astonishing and revealing. Because the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's God alone who creates. And God insists on this point. In Isaiah 45, 12, he says, I made the earth and created man on it. And God is praised for his creation. In Revelation 4.11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Only God can, cre can create something out of nothing. And yet here we see that Jesus wields that creative power of God. 
And this is not like the miracle of Elisha in 2 Kings 4, the other miracles of the Old Testament where, where food is created. Because this isn't just that, that God is sustaining some quantity of something in a vessel somewhere. No, this is very clear. The food is coming from the person of Jesus himself. Jesus is himself creating. Jesus is the creator. And this is a theological truth that the New Testament writers later fully unpacked. So in John 1, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1 says, For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. The Father created all things through the Son. That is the clear teaching of the Scriptures. And so this miracle winds up becoming a very powerful, direct proof of the deity of Christ. As we've seen in some of the previous miracles, as we will see again next week, Jesus does what the Old Testament says only God can do. And that tells us that Jesus is God in the flesh. But there's more. Because if Jesus wields the creative power of God, then Jesus is omnipotent. He is almighty. He can do anything. Why do I say that? Well, the scriptures tell us that is the logical conclusion. Jeremiah 32, 17 says, Ah, oh, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your own great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. If God, by his very will and word, can speak the cosmos into being from nothingness, what is beyond his power? Absolutely nothing. And so if Jesus is God, if Jesus wields that same divine creative power, then what is beyond his ability? Again, absolutely nothing. And if this is true, and it is, then there's a critically important lesson here for us, which is that when we are faced with hardship, when we feel desperate like the crowds in this passage, when we have a great need for help, when we find that like the disciples there is some challenge or task before us that seems insurmountable, we've got to stop looking at the terribly difficult nature of our circumstances. I'm going to talk about that more next week. We've got to stop looking at ourselves and our own inability and weakness and thinking how impossible everything seems. And instead we need to look to Jesus. Now, sometimes when I talk about looking at Jesus, I mean looking to his example and imitating him. But this is one of those areas where we cannot imitate Jesus. Because we do not have the power to just speak and command things to come into being which are not. You know, there are false teachers out there who say that we do. I remember one time being at a restaurant and I saw this woman and she was praying because she had cancer. And she was praying for her cancer to go away. And this other woman came up and started harassing her. And she was saying, your praying isn't enough. You've got to declare it. You can't just ask it. You've got to speak it into existence. What a bunch of garbage. We aren't Jesus. We cannot create by our own will or word. We've got to take our problems to the one who can. We've got to pray to Jesus. We need to remember 1 Peter 5 says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Jesus has compassion for us. Jesus cares about us. And Jesus is able to bring his immense limitless power to bear on any situation. You know, we live in an age of such doubt and faithlessness. And even among the people of God, I think, today there's a fear to pray big prayers, to ask God to do amazing things. You know, later in this book, Jesus will say, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and be thrown into the sea, it will happen. Now many of us are uneasy with verses like this because we've seen people take verses like this and, and say, well, this is a promise that, that God says, if you ask him anything without reservation, he has to do it. And then we've known people who have believed that and prayed earnestly for God to do something, and it doesn't happen. And then they get terribly confused, and their faith gets destroyed. 
And because of that, we often point to verses like 1 John 5.14 when we talk about prayer. That this is the confidence that we have towards Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we rightly remind ourselves that in the end it is God's will that ultimately determines whether our prayer is going to be answered or not. God is not our personal genie. And yet I worry that perhaps we become pessimistic about prayer. That perhaps we have taken this truth that God may say no so far that now we expect God not to answer our big prayers and our biggest needs. Maybe we don't pray for those big things as much as we should. But what does James 4 say? You do not have because you do not ask. Friends, if we have desperate needs, if we have things that seem impossible to us, if we have any anxieties at all, the Bible says we need to take them to Jesus because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the Jesus who could feed thousands of people from a boy's snack bag can do anything in whatever situation we find ourselves. Now, he may say no to us. And if he does, he has a good reason and his plans and purposes for not granting our prayers. But friends, Jesus may well say yes to our prayers. He often does. And so we would do well to pray in faith, believing that he is able to do what we ask and far more. And that's what we see now in our final point, which is that Jesus gives grace in great abundance. You know, the crowds had been seated in these precise arrangements of 50 people. It would have been easy for Jesus to create the bare minimum, to say, oh, there's exactly this number of people, and I know what their caloric intake is, and I'm just going to supply that. But that's not what Jesus does. Again, verse 20 says, and they all ate and were satisfied. John puts it like this, when they had eaten their fill. Now, Jesus didn't just make enough for everybody to have a modest, low-calorie portion. He made enough for people to have seconds and thirds and fourths. In fact, so much was made that we read in verse 20, and they took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. There were lots of leftovers of the bread, and Mark also tells us of the fish. Now, you'll notice that the number 12 appears here. And very often you'll find that there are people who get excited any time that the numbers 3 or 7 or 12 show up in the Bible. And they'll try to argue that there are hidden spiritual meanings that stand behind what is being described in a text that uses those numbers. And usually I resist that kind of interpretation. Because sometimes a number is just a number. And sometimes a description of what happened is just a description of what happened. But I think there is good reason to suspect that something more than meets the eye is happening here. Because in John's Gospel, Jesus commands this in John 6.12. Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. It's interesting. Jesus is very clear. He wants to make sure that no, nothing whatsoever, no scrap, is lost from this miracle. And it's even more interesting. Because within just a few verses in the same chapter, Jesus uses this same verb when he makes this statement in John 6:39. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. It sounds very similar. Jesus isn't going to lose anything that the Father has assigned to him. Everyone who is elect will be saved. And I think then that this collection of the leftovers in some way points to that theological truth. Uh, this seems even more plausible when you consider that in our next chapter, Matthew 15, Jesus is again going to perform another creative miracle in which he feeds thousands of people. But this time, Jesus is going to be feeding Gentiles instead of the Jews who are in our passage. And there, only seven baskets of leftovers will be taken up instead of 12. So I think that these two food miracles may be depicting a really profound theological truth, which is that Jesus will save all that belong to him, all the elect, without fail. And here we see that he will save the elect from all 12 tribes of Israel, and in the next chapter that he will save all of the elect from the fullness of the Gentiles, because seven is often associated with the idea of 
fullness or completion. Now that may be a speculative reading, but I think there's enough here to suggest that's what we're supposed to take from this. But we come now to our final verse, verse 21. And those who ate were about 5,000 men. All four Gospels record that. But Matthew alone goes further to clarify that count is besides women and children. So at least 5,000 people were fed here, and it sounds like there were a lot more since Matthew tells us there were also women and children who he wasn't counting. So the miracle here could conceivably have been that Jesus fed as many as 15 to 20,000 people from just five barley loaves and two fish. It really is an amazing miracle, no matter how large the crowd was. You can see why the eyewitnesses and, and those who spoke to, 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 to Mark and Luke and you know, Matthew and John were eyewitnesses. It's easy to see why they all would have been so taken with this shocking experience. And the crowds perceived the miracle too. John 6.14 says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now at first we think, hey, this is great. The crowds finally get it. Jesus is the Messiah. But John 6.15 says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again up the mountain by himself. The time of the Passover was at hand, John had told us. These crowds were soon going to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And they wanted to take Jesus with them to install him as king. A king who could overthrow Rome. A king who could keep their bellies filled. But Jesus wanted no part of that. Because he knew that the crowds had not truly understood him or his mission at all. Because Jesus in his first coming was not bringing the kingdom in its fullness all at once. Because the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed that grows large over time. But which begins small. To the crowd's response here was no response of repentant faith. Jesus says to the crowds later in John 6, You are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. The response is born out of material worries, not repentant faith. And so it is a false response that Jesus will not accept. And he again withdraws from the crowds. Now I want us here to see the abundant grace of Jesus. When Jesus works in this passage, he doesn't do the bare minimum. He doesn't create the smallest amount of food necessary to placate some rumbly tummies. No, his generosity is tremendous. And friends, that's always true. The grace that Jesus gives is always generous and abounding. He gives so much common grace, grace to the whole world, believing or not. I know that we live in hard times, and yet things are still not as bad as they could be. That's a grace from Jesus. The rain still falls. People saved and not still have small joys and simple pleasures and the gift of time. That's a grace from Jesus, an abundant grace far beyond all we could expect or hope. And Jesus gives extravagantly greater grace to his people. Think of the cross. Jesus doesn't only cancel our sins. He imputes his own righteousness to those who believe that. It's extravagant grace. Beyond that, not only do we find salvation and forgiveness of sins, but God adopts believers into his own family. He makes us the heirs to the greatest of all fortunes. That is extravagant grace. But he doesn't only tell us that good times are far in the future for us, because James 1 tells us that every good and perfect gift comes from him. Every good thing in our lives now ultimately comes from God. That is extravagant grace. And in the end, Ephesians 2 says, In the coming ages, he will show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That is extravagant grace. Indeed, he is able to do far more abundantly than all we might ask or think. His grace abounds to us. And so, friends, this morning, I hope we have cause to rejoice in Jesus and worship Jesus because his compassion for everyone is immense for those who belong to him, and even for those who don't. Now, if you've never come to Christ, I don't want you to mistake what I'm saying. Jesus has compassion on you. Jesus pities you because you are like sheep without a shepherd. And as 1 Peter 2 says, you need to return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. You need to seek Jesus, not just because he's powerful, 
Not just because he can do cool things. You need to repent and follow him. You need to turn away from your life of rebellion. You need to recognize Jesus is your Lord and Master and that he has the right to tell you how to live. You need to recognize that salvation is available only because he has died for human sin and risen from the dead. And you need to cast yourself upon Jesus' mercy and live. But today, if you do know Jesus, then I hope you've heard an encouragement that Jesus is for us. He loves us. He loves you, and he is all-powerful. He cares about what you're going through. And nothing we encounter, no health struggle, no economic problem, no interpersonal difficulty, no spiritual battle is beyond his power. And he is generous and abounding in his gracious answers to our prayers. So, friends, we have a great reason to boldly approach him in prayer. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everything in life will be smooth and easy if we pray. In fact, we're going to see next week that while Jesus sent the unbelieving crowds home with their bellies full, he's about to send his disciples into a violent storm. But believing friends, we know the one who is in control over every situation in life, the one who is able to deliver us through every hardship that we face. And so we must trust in Jesus and cast our cares upon him because he cares for you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great compassion. We are encouraged by your great power. Uh, we are in awe of your great and abounding grace. Lord, we pray that all those who hear these words would, would examine themselves to see whether they belong to you or not. We pray, God, that you would save those who don't. And we pray, God, that you would encourage and comfort and console those who do. And help them to find encouragement and strength in Jesus. Encourage them, Lord, to pray. And to pray perseveringly. To seek your answers, Lord, for we know that you are good and gracious. And we delight in you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.